Hey, North Boulevard, I am so sorry that here I am again doing a sermon from my home office because of sickness. You guys probably know I had COVID uh, at the end of January and the uh, beginning of February. I thought I had recovered a week or so ago. In fact, I even got out a week or so ago, but I've kind of had a relapse over the weekend. Uh, I've got some steroids and I've got uh, uh, some cough syrup that I think will help me get through this sermon. We're not sure it's safe for me to be out uh, and we're not sure, but what I'm contagious is not. So I apologize. I don't want to miss being with you again. I just, we've worked on this series. This is really important to me, what we're doing. And um, so I promise you, I'm not going to make a habit out of doing this. If you'll just endure it one more time. Actually, my daughter gave me, my sweet daughter gave me a real good take on it. Um, Y'all may not know this, but last week, Glenn Robb was not supposed to preach. David Hunsaker was scheduled to preach. And at 1.30 a.m. Sunday morning, David got very sick, had to call Glenn. And with only eight hours notice, Glenn preached the whole sermon. Did a great job too, by the way. But, uh, you know, after flying all that time, I've been exhausted. David's sickness kind of created that last minute change. You may also not know this, but next week, Shadanke Johnson was scheduled to preach for us at North Boulevard. And very sadly, Shadanke and his wife Santa found out that one of their sons died very suddenly and unexpectedly in an accident. Uh, and the family's just devastated. And pray for Shadanke and Santa, by the way. But he's not coming now. And then this is my second time to miss because of COVID. And so my daughter just made the point, not that the devil caused these bad things to happen. I don't, I don't know that he has that power, but he can discourage us through these things. He can, you know, he can whisper all the stuff in our ears that would make us feel like it's just not worth it. Or, uh, you know, this is, we're not, we can't win or, you know, there's just always something bad happening. And I just want you to know, I'm not going to listen to him. I'm, I will not let the evil one win. I just not going to, and I know you're not going to. So I'm not going to tap out. I'm not going to get discouraged. And because I'm, I'm really in this, I'm, I'm sold out to what we're doing. I'm just asking you to indulge me. What I hope is this last time as I preach here from the home office. Um, and uh, so anyway, um, thank you for, for indulging me on this one. I want to start by telling you a story. It's a true story. I had the privilege of doing the invocation, the opening prayer at the appointment of uh, one of our judges in Rutherford County. By the way, while I was there, there was all, many of the judges were there. And I counted six of them who have a relationship with North Boulevard. It's kind of intimidating to think about that. So Trey McFarland was appointed a judge. Back, it was back in the fall of 2021. And I got to say the prayer. Well, his father, Ben Hall McFarland, was retiring the same day as a judge. And so kind of got, it was really cool to get to see this. Uh, and, uh, you know, J Judge Ben Hall sort of swearing in his son, Judge Trey. Well, I was standing back towards the back of the room with Brenda, uh, Ben Hall's wife, who, by the way, I've known Brenda. Brenda, don't get mad at me. Brenda was one of my teachers in junior high. That's how long I've known her. And um, uh, by the way, a delightful and strong teacher that I have begged, please forget me. Don't remember the junior I kid. I've repented so much of being that person back then. But anyway, I've known him a long time. I don't know of anybody I admire more than Judge Ben Hall McFarlane. I just don't. A reporter came up to me and Brenda while we were standing there. And this reporter just volunteered a story that neither of us had heard before. But it's a true story. She said, I need to tell you a story about something Judge Ben Hall McFarlane did several years ago. So there was a guy who was brought in to Judge McFarlane's court 
uh, he was guilty of some felony. I don't know what it was. Uh, I, I'm guessing they had to plea out. I don't really know what happened, but I know that Judge McFarland had to sentence him to eight years in prison for this felony. After he had, uh, had given the sentence to the man, the man was standing up and Judge McFarland asked him, you know, is there anything you'd like to say to the court? And the man looked at Judge McFarland and he said, Judge McFarland, this is the right sentence for me because I'm not worth anything. And honestly, he said, I've never been worth anything. And the reporter said to us, she said, when he said that, Judge Ben Hall McFarland stood up from his bench, walked down on the floor, wrapped his arms around this convicted felon, hugged him and said to him, you mustn't say that. You are of infinite value. You were made in the image of God. You're not worthless. You're worth everything. And then the judge said to him on the sentence, go back and figure out just how worthwhile you actually are. And this reporter said to us, she said, you know, I followed the man, the, the felon, and she said his whole life has changed and he credits Judge Ben Hall McFarland's comments when he came down off the bench and said, you're not too small, you're not worthless. It changed his life. I've just thought about that since the fall and I've been waiting to tell you that story because it's like, I mean, I told somebody I had a really cool Ben Hall McFarland story to tell, and uh, I was telling them earlier in the week, and they said, well, every story about him is going to be a good story. That's been my experience, too. But I've just thought about it. You know, isn't, hasn't God kind of done that with us? That you're never too small for God? You're not too insignificant for God? You're not too unaccomplished for God? You're not too sinful for God? You can't get so far away that God won't take you? That in so many ways, our judge, and justice matters, God is a judge, but our judge also steps down off the bench and wraps his arms around us and says, you're of infinite value to me. I, I take you in, I'll take you in my home. I read a tweet probably a week or so ago. Um, an atheist organization sent out a tweet. They actually meant it as kind of, I guess, an insult or a challenge to the Christian faith. They said, you mean that a Christian actually believes that God created a universe 14 billion years ago, you know, spread uh, trillions of trillions of miles across space where humans are, you know, this big on the scale of things in the universe just so that God could love you. They were challenging Christians on that. But when I read it, I thought, yeah, that's it. That's exactly the Christian message. God loves me and I'm not too insignificant. I'm not too small for God. In fact, y'all excuse me again, I'm just fighting a cough here. That's really the point of Hebrews 11. It's that God in Hebrews 11, this great hall of faith, God takes what would otherwise be ordinary people, or sometimes they, like they're not only, they didn't even get up to the level of ordinary yet. God takes ordinary people, and because they're willing to take a step of faith, they're willing to respond to a challenge. They don't let an opportunity to go by. God makes them extraordinary, turns them into heroes. The names of the people in Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith of the Bible, because that's what it is. It's like a museum. It's a hall of faith. All the faithful people, not all, but many of the faithful people, Hebrews 11 just kind of chronicles all this faithfulness. But none of them was a hero until they took a step of faith. They were ordinary people, but because they were willing to do something, they, they, they said, now's our moment. Now is our moment. They became legends. We name our kids after them. They became heroes. Ordinary people became 
extraordinary people. And that actually leads us to the, the two verses I want us to look at today. They're Matthew, excuse me, they're uh, Hebrews 11, and they're verses 30 and 31. For just a second. <clears throat> so it is a story of the falling of the walls of Jericho and of one woman who participated in rescuing the Israelites. I'll just read the two verses. Hebrews 11, verses 30 and 31. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute, Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So these really are two angles of the same story, a story that's found in Joshua. It really could start in chapter 1. The big story begins in chapter 2, and it goes through chapter 6 of Joshua. It's a story of the Israelites now having escaped slavery in Egypt, wandered for 40 years in a wilderness, now about to claim the land of promise that God had promised to them and their ancestors so many years ago. The very first city to be captured in the actual land of Israel, so on the west side of the Jordan. They've captured some on the east side, but now they're crossing the Jordan, going into the west side, is the fabled city of Jericho. I do want to say a word about Jericho. So Jericho is the oldest city on planet Earth. They, uh, they date the city of Jericho to about the year 10,000 BC, making it a 12,000-year-old city. It was the seat of the worship of the moon god, which was a very important god in antiquity. And that means that Jericho actually was one of the most important cities on planet Earth for, for not just centuries, for millennia. I think in Joshua's day, Jericho may have lost some of its power, may not have been all that strong in Joshua's day, but it had a lot of legend behind it. So everybody knew about Jericho. It, um, you know, it was, I don't know what we can compare it to today, but it was just a fabled city. It was a city you knew about, a very powerful city. And you have these runaway slaves. They're not ordinary. They, they don't even rise up to the level of ordinary yet. They're runaway slaves out of Egypt. There's no reason to think that anybody would have even noticed the Israelites if they hadn't had faith. I mean, what other groups of runaway slaves went off into the wilderness and you never heard from them again? Well, so many that you never did hear from them again. You don't even know who they are. The only reason you know who the Israelites are, this group of runaway slaves, is because when God gave them this extraordinary, really almost ridiculous plan for capturing Jericho, they said yes. They did it. They seized the moment that was theirs. They looked down the road and said, we can, make a, we can make a difference for all of our descendants, for generations, for eons yet to come. God said, remember, he, he didn't say, I want you to get all your weapons out and polish them. He said, I just want you to go walk around the city seven times. So once a day, seven days, and then seventh day, seven times, blow your trumpets and yell, and I'll take care of the rest. That's an act of incredible faith. These runaway slaves, these insignificant, ordinary people became legendary, extraordinary heroes. Because when their moment came, they said yes. They had faith. That's why they made it into Hebrews 11. And then Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute. Probably the term means more in the Old Testament than we're aware of in the 21st century here in the West. This prostitution was oftentimes part of pagan worship in Canaan. In fact, that's one reason why God said we're going to wipe out the Canaanites because their sexual sins had become so deviant and so bad. God says, I'm, I'm going to wipe them out because of it. So 
to worship Baal or the what's called the, the uh, Asherot, the Asherah. In some cases, you actually went in with a prostitute. I won't go into any more detail. But it was so vile that um, the sexual sin, the perversity of paganism, by the way, it still is. But God said, I'm going to wipe them all out. I have, there's nothing else I can do. So it's likely that Rahab was not just a prostitute. She may well have been a priestess in one of the pagan religions. That is, she may have actually sinfully served in a rebellious religion against the one true God. So how does she get in the hall of faith? How does she get into Hebrews 11? Well, because she believed in the one true God when her opportunity came. She took that step. She did something when the moment presented itself. Uh, two spies had been sent into Jericho by Joshua to spy out the city. The city discovered spies were there. They went to Rahab and she hid them. Now, by the way, Rahab lied about them. She lied to the city officials and the Bible doesn't condone her lying. Uh, she's not credited with doing the right thing by lying. The Bible never says that it's okay to do evil in order to accomplish good. She's not commended for lying. She's commended for hiding these guys, for helping them stay alive so they could go back and give a report. Actually, what she's really commended for, if you look at Joshua chapter 2, is that she realized, even though, I, I again, as a prostitute, most likely she was a priestess in the, in the Canaanite pagan religions. But she realized who the real God is. She was a pagan just now coming to God, a pagan who didn't even know it was wrong to lie, who is just now coming to the one true God. And as an indication of her belief in the one true God, she took the chance, because it came with a capital punishment of hiding these spies. She said yes when the faith opportunity presented itself. And that's why she makes it into Hebrews 11. That's why anybody gets into Hebrews 11. I want to remind you, nobody gets into Hebrews 11 because they started out extraordinary. They get into Hebrews 11 because when an opportunity came, they knew who they were. They said, you know, we believe in this God. Let's do something about it. Do something about it. Let's act on it. Well, you can see where I'm going to go with this that God presents us with all kinds of opportunities for us to rise up in faith and to do something extraordinary, do something that will change the world. And I want you to see God can take even, he can take small things, he can take things that might appear to be unimportant at the time, things that, um, you know, that might in any other world not even have happened. God can take those things and he can push them into some sort of eternal blessing that affects Millions of people. God can do that with the smallest of gestures. Just thinking about one illustration of that from my own life. When I was 11 years old, I, uh, I grew up at the Smyrna Church of Christ in Smyrna, Tennessee, not far from where Murfreesboro is, where North Boulevard, where you know, kind of the where where everything broadcasts out of. It's a great church too, by the way. I own my soul. It's a Sunday night. The year was 1972. I was 11 years old. Some guy came in and he preached a sermon on Sunday night. He was a visiting preacher. I don't know who it was. I don't remember who it was. I don't really remember his sermon. All I remember is that it's a sermon. his sermon was about how the church cannot be okay as long as there are lost people out there, that we have a job to do to go out and reach lost people. By the way, it's a really important message. 
he preached a sermon and then he mentioned one way to reach lost people is to buy a bus and go out and pick children up who are lost. His argument was parents will let their kids come to your church even if the parents don't come. They'll let your, their kids come if you go pick them up. Just buy a bus and go pick them up and you can save people's souls that way. All right, he preached his sermon. He sat down. I, like I said, it wasn't even an extraordinary sermon. I, I, I kind of think it was an uneventful sermon. We did the Lord's Supper. They had the announcements, you know, back then it was long announcements about, I don't know, whatever, you know, the pizza party in the third grade or whatever. Getting ready to say the closing song and the closing prayer. Church was over. And let me tell you something. We were that far from David Young becoming an incredibly different person than the David Young that I am today. We were that far from my entire trajectory being different than it is right now. You know why? because we were that far from that service just ending and everybody going home like we always did. But something extraordinary happened that night. As we were getting ready to leave, an old man stood up in church. His name was J.W. Mankin. I still remember him. J.W. Mankin, I don't even know what he did for a living. I guess he was a farmer. I don't know. It seemed like everybody was a farmer back then. I do remember he had a twinkle, kind of angelic eyes. He stood up, we're right at the end of the service, he stood up in the auditorium and he yelled out and got everybody's attention, which is way out of line. You know, don't do it. I don't want you to do it. <laughs> don't do it. He stood up and he said, hey, I'm convicted we need to do something about the lost people in our community. And I'm willing to help buy a bus for this church to go out and pick up lost kids. I pledged the first hundred dollars. I just want you to imagine being an 11 year old boy and watching that happen in your church. It has a big impact on you. I remember Steve Edmonds stood up. He, so he eventually, Steve became an elder at that church. He's another very influential man in my life. I remember him standing up. I can still remember, I was 11 years old. I remember the look on his face when he stood up and said, I'm in for 200. I remember Foy, uh, uh, Foy Smith standing up. One of the men had a big impact on me. I remember him saying, very humble man looking down, I'm in for a hundred. I remember looking down, there were seven of us in my family. We didn't have any money. And I remember my daddy standing up and saying, I'm in for a hundred. I cannot tell you what an impact that had on me as an 11 year old boy to watch these men be men, to watch these men act like men in front of me. And before that night was over with, we went from this church that was about to go home and watch TV. We'd already raised enough money to buy two church buses. And I want you to know, the rest of my teenage life at Smyrna Church Christ was devoted to that bus ministry. It changed everything for me. My whole perspective on what it means to be a Christian was shaped in that bus ministry. And I'm telling you, if that night, if J.W. Mackin had not stood up, I would be a very different person than the one I am right now. I learned on the bus ministry, because we went door knocking every Saturday, every Saturday my whole teenage life. I went out, I probably baptized two dozen people just in high school, I'm not bragging, but it's through the bus ministry. I learned there are lost people and God cares about lost people. And what does it profit a man if, he, if we give him everything? We can give him every kind of present we want to give him and give him every meal we want to give him. But if he loses his soul, what did he gain? I learned from that bus ministry because one man stood up when that opportunity presented itself. I learned to care about lost people, to make disciples of all nations. Tell you what else I got from that. When I was 14, I was made bus captain of bus number three. And the bus captain was forced to sit next to the bus secretary, who was 12 at the time, just happened to be a little redheaded girl. 
my wife, Julie. I knew her before then, but I don't know that we'd had much conversation. But when I sat next to her at age 14 with her at age 12, it was only a matter of time before we decided, you know, one day we're going to get married. I mean, I got my wife out of that. It's not too much to say. There's one little moment, one moment in time where one brother stood up and said, I'm not going to let this opportunity get by. I'm going to leave a legacy. J.W. Mackin doesn't know how much he changed my life when he stood up in that three minutes and made that pledge. And not just me, because when I try to lead other people to make disciples, that's the voice of J.W. Mankin speaking through me. Let me tell you this story. So we started the bus ministry in 72. In 1998, 25, a little more than 25 years later, I was working at North Boulevard. I got a phone call from Mississippi. Some guy says, are you David Young? I said, yes, I am. Are you the David Young from Smyrna? Well, actually, there were five David Youngs from Smyrna that I knew of because I'd get their phone calls. And once I even got one of their paychecks deposited in my account, it was taken out pretty quickly afterwards. But I said, I'm one of them. He said, are you the one that went to Smyrna Church Christ? And I'm actually getting suspicious now. I said, yep, I am. I'm a little nervous. He said, is your dad Bob Young? I said, yes, my dad is Bob Young. He said, well, I want to tell you something. You don't know me and you won't remember me. And your dad probably won't remember me. But he said, when I was a little boy, your bus came by and picked me up every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and every Wednesday night. He said, and he told me about his family life. It, I'll just say this. It was terrible what was happening to him. He said, I just want you to know your dad was the only dad I had back then. He took me in and he loved me. And he says, that was the family I had on that bus ministry. And he said, I want you to know my family, we're all Christians now. We're active members of the church. And he said, your dad saved my life on that bus ministry. And I want to call him and tell him, thank you. Let me ask you a question. What would have happened if J.W. Mankin had not stood up in 1972 when the opportunity came, if he had not stood up and said, I'm in, $100. And I'm telling you, it will keep paying dividends. That's what God can do, even with small gestures. He's a hero to me. An ordinary man became extraordinary because when the, when the opportunity came, he just said, Guys, we can do this. Yes. Let's say yes. Let's say yes to it. That's what God does with opportunities. In the year 2013, North Boulevard did what we called the 2020 vision. We raised, um, I don't know what the total ended up being, just under $5 million. The pledges were $6.1 million. The amount that came in was just under $5 million. We raised it to start West Campus. West Campus, it was started. You were started out of this vision, the 2020 vision, from the year 2013, looking forward to the year 2020. Our School of Discipleship, our Discipleship Tutorial, our School of Christian Thought, our Church Planting Initiative, our focus on making disciple making the main thing, our interest in being a multi-ethnic church, a lot of the prayer initiatives that have happened at North Boulevard, all these things came out of that 2020 vision. And a lot of you gave very sacrificially to that. In fact, I don't, I'm not exaggerating when I say that the happiest I've ever seen North Boulevard was during that campaign. Literally, and I, actually some people were irritable with the, every time you do a fundraiser or a giving campaign, some people leave because they don't like it. I, I get that, just people don't like change. But I'm telling you, I don't ever remember you being happier than when we got to see God's like, that God will take these little things we do and turn them into eternal investments. 
People gave property, they gave percentages of their job. People were selling artwork and giving it to the church. People were out selling food, there were yard sales. We had children who were doing lemonade stands. I, I wanna tell you this, so I had the, the honor of doing the funeral for uh, Doug Summer a couple of weeks ago. A very faithful, wonderful man. Doug Summer's friend of almost 70 years told me that he had never heard him say an ugly word, he had never heard him say a bad word, never heard him speak badly of anybody. He said he was the most perfect Christian man I've ever known. Now that's a friend speaking, a male friend speaking about a, a, a gentleman. Well, several years before, I had the honor of doing Marlena Summers' funeral. That's Doug's wife. When we did that 2020 vision, I, I think it's safe now for me to say this. I, I would have protected Marlena's anonymity before, but I think I have her blessing now. Among the things that they gave towards that, Marlena brought me a ring that Doug had given her. And she said, I want to give this ring to this vision. I said, Marlene, you don't have to give your ring. By the way, you know people gave their wedding rings? West Campus, I know you're grateful, so don't, don't take this the wrong way. But you know that people gave their wedding rings so that we could plant the West Campus of North Boulevard? Marlena brought in a ring. She said, it's going to appraise for a lot. Sell it and make disciples and plant churches. By the way, we had it appraised, and she's right. It was worth an awful lot of money. And she just said... I can wear the ring or I can see it turned into disciples and I want to make disciples. And I just think, I know Marlene is proud right now. She has to be proud to see. There have been 98 baptisms at West Campus. The Smyrna Laverne. Smyrna Laverne baptized 40 people, 40 people because of that sacrifice. And, and, and we even had children. And these children might have made what, what now you look back and you might think it was a small gift. But don't you see that God took even those small gifts and turned them into these amazing things? We had one. I was thinking about this. So Ellie Stevens, she's a, a college student now. And Ellie, I, I think you'll see this. In 2013, Ellie was probably 10 or 11 years old. Ellie baked cookies, sold a lot of cookies, took all the money and gave it to this vision to make disciples and plant churches. Ellie I want to thank God for you. And here's what I want to tell you. 98 people have been baptized because you did that. We've planted 400 churches because you did, we did that. The School of Christian Thought. All these things that have happened, Ellie, it's because you made that sacrifice. You said, I'm going to take this chance. This is my chance now to become extraordinary. This is my turn. It's my turn to do it. Even as an 11-year-old or 10-year-old or whatever you were. When we had Kim Fook come, Kim was the napalm girl in that 1975 Pulitzer Prize winning photograph. Remember she came to North Boulevard? It was part of the School of Christian Thought, which we started because of the, of the, the amazing giving that people like you, that Ellie gave. Kim came, a little Vietnamese girl who had been accidentally napalmed by the South Vietnamese uh, Air Force. And she came and she talked about how she had become a Christian since then, how God used even that to, to bring her to Jesus, and how now our whole, our whole family are ministers, winning all kinds of people to Jesus. We've got a, we've got a brother. I don't have his permission to, sh to say his name, so I won't. He fought in the Vietnam War. After Kim came and spoke, this brother said to me, he said, I have nightmares almost every night of my time in Vietnam. After Kim came, he said, for the first time uh, in all these decades, the nightmares have ceased. Hey, Ellie, thank you for baking those cookies. Like when you saw the opportunity and you stepped up, God is, God is still bringing a harvest in 
from every cookie you baked and everyone you sold for Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you something else. 400 churches have been planted because of that. One day at the Day of Judgment, you're going to be standing there and there's going to be a whole group of kids come running up to you from the global south and they're going to surround you and say, you're Ellie, you're Ellie, you're the ones that baked those cookies. We're here because of you. We're here because of you. I'm just saying, guys, that's how Rahab gets in here. This is how these runaway slaves get in here because when they see the opportunity, they rise up and say, yes. And I bet you Ellie doesn't miss the cookies. I bet you J.W. Mankin doesn't say, I wish I had the $100 back. I bet you those of you who gave me the 2020 vision, I bet you're not saying, you know, I sure miss that money. I've been, I've been poor now and I'll... You know, God took it all and still blessed us. He, every time we shoveled a little out, he shoveled more in. By the way, I do have to say this. So on March the 6th, that's a Sunday, we got an opportunity to help our children again. We have Boulevard Marketplace. So our children, this is Sunday, March the 6th. It's just around the corner, two weeks off. Our children at East and West Campus, have they've been collecting things and cooking things and whatnot, and they're going to be selling them and then giving all the money to this New Day campaign, this giving campaign that we're doing for March the 13th. It's in between first and second service. Hey, guys, will you do me a favor? Will you go down there and buy something and give them a little more than what they're asking? And, and congratulate, let them be part of something that in 40 years they can look back on and say, we did the right thing. Look at what we did. By the way, our teenagers, they're in on it as well. Our teenagers, a lot of the teenagers are gone this weekend, but... The teenagers have been challenged to add a zero to whatever their age is. If you're 14, will you give $140? And they're out there raising money so they'd be part of it. And don't underestimate. Like, we have Rahab. She's a prostitute. I mean, like the most marginalized person in the Canaanite world suddenly makes it into the Hall of Faith. She makes it into Hebrews 11. God can take anything when we will offer it as a step of radical courageous faith march 6 don't miss it go down there and help those kids it's between the first and second service at both east and at west all right i, I i'm gonna run out of time but I, I do want to tell you one more story and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up so it's december the first 1955 in montgomery alabama just a small otherwise um, say this I'd be careful how I say, but otherwise insignificant person, uh, just ordinary person, made a, an extraordinary act of faith that changed the world. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, you know, I, I hear the story of Rosa Parks, and what the first thought I keep having to myself every time I hear the story is how how did we let that world arise where she had to do what she did? I just don't understand how we had a world like that. We Christians here in America, but nonetheless. So in Montgomery, Alabama, as in a lot of states, the uh, cities, the buses were segregated. And it's not even, it's even worse than it sounds. So it's not like there was a black section of the bus and a white section of the bus. No, it was worse than that. In the buses in Montgomery, Alabama, there was a sign, whites only, and it was a movable sign. So here's what happened. The blacks had to go on the front of the, black Americans had to go on the front of the bus, pay their dime, and then go to the back and get on the bus. And the sign was moved back and forth depending on how many whites there were. So the sign might be right here, but if more whites came on, they would literally move the sign back and all the black Americans would have to get up and move back behind the sign. 
as I said, how did we live in a world like that? How, do we, how, were, how could we possibly have been okay with that? Well, it was December the 1st, 1955. Uh, there were four African-American men, three African-American men, and this one woman, Rosa Parks, and they were sitting up towards the front of what at that moment was the, the black section. Some white people got on the bus. The bus driver stops the bus, comes back, takes the sign and moves it behind Rosa Parks and the others and says, y'all need to move back so the whites can have these seats. And the three uh, gentlemen got up and, uh, and did it, according to Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks had just recently, well, she had been watching what was going on. Emmett Till had not long before that been lynched. She had been, she's a very active Christian. She had been praying and asking God, give me courage, let me do the right thing. She was coming home. She was a seamstress at a department store. She was coming home from work. She was tired like every other day. Had worked hard, going home. And for whatever reason, on this particular day, when they moved the sign back and they said to her, you need to move back, she got her faith and her courage. In that moment, she looked at the bus driver. She'd seen him before. I think he had sassed her once before. And she said, no, I'm not moving back. You know, It could, have, it could have ended that day. <laughs> Think of all the ways it could have gone. But one courageous act, one simple no, I'm not going to do it, um, changed the world. She was arrested. By the way, if you see her mugshot, just this little, small, little sweet woman smiling at the camera. I think she had to pay a $14 fine or something like that. But it launched the Montgomery bus strikes, the boycotts. And one year and two weeks after, little Rosa Parks said no. Segregation ended on the buses in Montgomery, Alabama. And within the next 10 years, Rosa Parks would become known as the mother of the civil rights movement. There are streets named after, schools named after, awards named after. She has honorary doctorates from universities. She has medals from Congress, from the presidents, uh, multiple presidents. And you, if, you, if you ask, if you look at the picture of this sweet little woman, it all just came from one moment of faith, of standing up and saying, you know, this is my time to do what's right. And God took that and changed the nation. Okay, you see what I'm arguing, right? I'm not even arguing for the giving campaign. I mean, you know I believe in it, and you know that we're kind of leading up to it. March the 13th is Giving Sunday. So I'll say it. I'm going to get it out of the way. On March the 13th, the card that you see right now already, we're going to ask you, if God has moved your heart to give, will you put down a commitment on the 13th? And let me say this, if God hasn't moved your heart to give to this, don't give. It's okay with us. You're still a great member at North Boulevard. But if God has moved you to give, will you put down a number on March the 13th and then take the next three years to pay towards that? Um, by the way, I also want to say this. The very next Sunday, March the 20th, and you can hoop and holler at this if you want to, we're going to break ground on that West building. March 20th, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, hayrods, snacks, I don't know, music, all that party stuff, and we're breaking ground on March the 20th because making disciples matters. 430 people at the West Campus last week. It matters what we're doing. This is our chance, our moment in the sun, and we're not going to back down. We're going to rise up to it. But I do want you to know this lesson is a lot, it's about a lot more than this. I mean, it's about, it's about,
It's about any opportunity God puts in front of you. Rise up. You don't have any idea what he can do with it. I, I interacted this past week with several of our members who are foster parents or who have adopted. I'm going to come back to this subject because I've said it before. I don't think there is a more Christ-like thing a person can do than to adopt someone else's child and raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. By the way, North Boulevard, we've got a, a ministry that's been run by members who've done a great job of it. This year, we've actually budgeted money. I want to make sure you know this. Tweet this out if you want to. We've budgeted money to help people pay for the expenses of adoption or foster care, not just North Boulevard members, but even non-members of North Boulevard. I'm letting you know that because we just actually think this needs to be elevated. This needs to be, this is a great opportunity for us. And I'm proud of those of you who've led the way in this. We've got some awesome people here. Those are examples of people who just said, yes, okay, yes, I see the opportunity, yes. And you have no idea where God's going to take that, what God's going to do with that, how many generations of lives you've changed by that. The Israelites were runaway slaves, but when God said, do, will you rise up? In faith, they said, yes. Rahab was a prostitute in a Canaanite, Canaanite pagan religion. And when God presented himself, she said in faith, yes. In fact, I'd be doing you a disservice if I didn't end with Matthew's gospel, the very first chapter, because in Matthew chapter 1, we don't get a lot about Rahab in the Bible, but we get one reference to her in Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus. And guess who's in the genealogy of Jesus? That's right. Down in verse 5, Salmon, that's the guy's name, he was the father of Boaz. This is the Boaz of the book of Ruth, by the way. Boaz's father was a guy named Salmon. Guess who Boaz's mother was? Rahab, the prostitute. Boaz, the father of Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. Boaz was the great-grandfather of King David. Rahab, the great-great-grandmother. Rahab is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Who could ever have imagined when the spies showed up and she said yes in faith to the challenge set before her that one day she would become an ancestor whose very blood, Canaanite blood, would flow in the veins of Jesus Christ. That's what happens when you stand up. Even if you're ordinary, even if you're small, even if you seem far away, even if you seem unimportant, even if, as the guy said to Judge Ben Hall, I'm not worth anything and I never have been, you rise up in faith and you will be. Because God takes the ordinary, turns it into the extraordinary when people act in faith. So let's stand up.